Good morning. My name is Dave Farley. I'm one of the pastors here at GCF. And this Sunday, we're, we're going to continue um, our book sale one more week. And we actually have a few new titles that showed up late. We're supposed to get here a few weeks ago, but they showed up uh, this last week. Two fantastic titles I want to recommend. Um, one is a new book by Eric Metaxas called Is Atheism Dead? This is right now a New York Times bestseller. It's fantastic. I'm about 100 pages into it. It's very, very good, very well written, and it'll really strengthen your faith when you have doubts. So this is available, 30% uh, off. This next book, is, it's a really interesting book. Just started using it. It's called Be Thou My Vision, um, subtitle, A Liturgy for Daily Worship. So this, this book um, contains 31 days of worship, and each day there's a call to worship, confession of sin, assurance of pardon, scripture reading plan. Uh, it's synchronized with the Reformed confessions. There's beautiful prayers in here as well. So if your devotional life needs a little boost or needs some direction, this is a fantastic resource that will immerse you in the creeds of Christianity, some ancient prayers, and also help you read through the Bible in a year. It's a fantastic resource just came out by Crossway. I think we have four or five of these uh, in the bookstore. So again, uh, these both came late. Sorry about that, but they're here now, and I'm sure you'll have Christmas money to spend. So go buy some books. Well, uh, this morning we are back in our series on the Gospel of John. Let me pray as we jump back into this wonderful book. Father, thank you Thank you for your holy, inspired, and errant word. Lord, we confess this morning that we are in desperate need for you to move in our midst. Father, we know that you are everywhere present, but we pray this morning that you would supernaturally manifest your presence in our midst as the word of God is preached. Father, we pray you would send your spirit now to magnify and honor the risen Christ. And we pray all these things for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church, said his favorite Bible verse was Zechariah 3.2, which says this, Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? John Newton, author of Amazing Grace, that famous hymn, said his favorite Bible verse was Romans 5.20, which says, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Martin Luther, the founder of the Lutheran Church, said that his favorite Bible verse was Romans 1.17, which says, the righteous will live by faith. Many of us have favorite Bible verses. For most people, their favorite verse is probably John 3.16, which goes like this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This verse has been called the greatest verse in the Bible, the world's greatest text, and the most wonderful sentence ever written. Many non-Christians have heard of it. I had a friend in high school who was not a Christian. His name was Eric, and he signed his yearbook, Eric 316, which was somewhat sacrilegious, but he was aware, at least, of John 316. It's often called the end zone verse because it's, it's often on a placard in the, in the NFL end zones for everyone to see. 
Unfortunately, our familiarity with this verse often numbs us to the incredible, breathtaking truths contained in this wonderful verse. Why is this verse so well-loved by so many people? It's well-loved because it highlights very specifically the love of God for fallen sinners. This verse reveals several things to us about God's love. We're going to look at four aspects of God's love from this one verse this morning. First is simply this, the author of love, the author of love. Well, who is the author of love according to this verse? And the answer is God the Father. Again, back to our verse, first couple of words, for God so loved the world. These verses highlight specifically the love of God the Father. And we know that John's talking about the Father because later on, this particular member of the Godhead sends his Son to the earth, so he must be the Father. Now, it's often surprising to many of us that God the Father loves us because many of us think of God the Son as the loving, kind, compassionate member of the Trinity who came to earth to suffer and die for us. But God the Father is that angry member of the Trinity who was out to smite us or get us. He's always looking for an excuse to make our lives miserable. Surely he doesn't want us to enjoy a glass of wine, watch a ball game, tell a joke, enjoy a strip of bacon, or go fishing. He just wants to make our lives miserable and hard. When I was a sophomore in high school, our tennis coach found a way to secure for all of us on the team these really nice, expensive warm-up suits, pants, and matching jackets. It was a big deal back in the early 90s to have these fancy warm-up pants and jackets. But he said... These need to come back to me when the season's over because they're supposed to last several seasons. When the season was over, I could not find my pants that he had loaned to me. And Coach Norton was not happy with Dave Farley. We happened to be at Comstock Park practicing, and there are six courts at Comstock Park lined up in a row, and because I lost those pants, Coach Norton made me run lines for all six of those courts. And to do the math, there is five lines per court, singles or doubles line, singles lines, center service line, doubles line, singles line. Five lines. That's 30 times running up and down these courts. And I remember being so angry at Coach Norton, huffing and puffing and sweating and probably cursing, thinking this punishment is far too severe. They're just pants, and I'm sprinting and sweating and angry, and he's just making my life miserable because he doesn't like me. That's often how we think about God the Father. He just wants to punish us and make our lives miserable, make it hurt, make it painful, because he's out to get us. But that's not how John describes God the Father. John says, for God so loved the world. God the Father is a God of love. Yes, he's a God of justice and righteousness, 
but he's also a God of extravagant love. 1 John 4, 8 says this, anyone who does not know God, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. John does not say God is loving, although he is, but he says that God in his very nature, God's very essence is love. God can't not love. Love is who he is at the very core of his being. Love permeates all of his other attributes. His holiness is loving holiness. His wisdom is loving wisdom. His justice is loving justice. His patience is loving patience. And his omnipresence is a loving omnipresence. Since God is love, there is zero malice anywhere in his being. And God's love is as infinite as God's being, which means that God's love can never, ever be measured. One scholar says this, a fish could sooner drink the Mississippi River dry than we could empty the fountain of his love. And here's the good news this morning. If you're a Christian, God the Father's love is directed towards you. He loves individuals, those made in his image with an infinite love. God the Father is love. He is the author of love. But who does he love specifically? This brings us to the next point. First is the author of love, and second is the object of love. Who is the object of the Father's love? And the answer is the world. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. Now, that phrase would have shocked first century Jews because they firmly believed that God the Father loved them, the Jewish nation, that wasn't in question. But to them, it made no sense that God the Father loved the world. That is, all different types of people, not just the Jews. But even more shockingly, in John's writings, that word, cosmos, for world, usually describes all those that are opposed to God. This means that the wonder of God's love is displayed in the unworthiness of its object. When John says that God so loved the world, John is saying that God the Father loves broken, unworthy, sinful people. That's what makes his love so astonishing. D.A. Carson, the famous New Testament scholar, says this, God's love is to be admired not because the world is so big and includes so many people, but because the world is so bad. That is the customary connotation of cosmos, the word for world. The world is so wicked that John elsewhere forbids Christians to love it or anything in it. God's love is astonishing, mind-blowing, because God loves 
the world. That is unworthy people like me and like you. And he loves all types of people, not just the Jews. Now, one of the greatest love stories in the Bible, if not the history of literature, is the story about Hosea and Gomer in the Old Testament. As many of you know, this happened several hundred years before Jesus Christ was born. God appears to Hosea and says, Hosea, I want you to marry Gomer. But I'm warning you in advance, says God, she will be unfaithful to you. She will commit adultery numerous times. She'll be very good at infidelity. But I want you to keep loving her no matter what happens. And so, Hosea, in obedience to God, decides to marry Gomer, a very unworthy, unlovely person. And God was basically saying to Hosea and Israel, this relationship is meant to be a metaphor or a picture of how I love my broken, sinful people. So they get married. Not, not long after their marriage, Gomer jumps into infidelity right away, and she will not stop committing adultery. And her sin is so grievous that it leads to all kinds of pain and misery, which, by the way, adultery always does lead to pain and misery. And her sin is so bad that she ends up having to sell herself to make a living. She becomes a slave, a prostitute. But God continues to remind Hosea that he is called to love her. At this point, she is in such bad shape that she has, has to um, auction herself on the auctioning block. And commenting on this story, one scholar says this, slaves were always sold naked in the ancient world. And that would have been true of Gomer as she was put up on the auction block in the capital city. She had apparently been a beautiful woman. She was still beautiful even in her fallen state. So when the bidding started, the offers were high as the men of the city bid for the body of the female slave. Twelve pieces of silver, said one. Thirteen, said Hosea. Fourteen, said another. Fifteen, said Hosea. The lower bidders drop out, but someone added, 15 pieces of silver and a bushel of barley. Hosea says, 15 pieces of silver and a bushel and a half of barley. The auctioneer looked around for the highest bidder and seeing none said, sold to Hosea for 15 pieces of silver and a bushel and a half of barley. Now Hosea has his wife back. His unfaithful wife who God called him to love. In the ancient Near East, Hosea could have killed her legally for her adultery, chastised her, publicly embarrassed her for her unfaithfulness. Instead, he pays for her freedom, clothes her, takes her home, and loves her. And again, Hosea was, I'm sorry, Gomer was very, very, unworthy. Yet God wanted the whole world to know through this relationship that God loves unworthy, broken, sinful people. For God so loved the world, that is, broken, sinful humanity, 
And this describes all of us before conversion. Consider Romans 5, 6 to 10. Paul makes this very clear. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. God does not love you because you're lovely, because you're an amazing person, because you're righteous. God loves you because God is love. That's why he loves you, not because you are worthy. And that's really good news because you and I can never, ever, ever be worthy enough. And as Christians, we're going to sin. And we're going to make ourselves unworthy through our rebellion against our loving Father. Yet God's going to not stop loving us because God loves unworthy people. And because God loves sinful, broken people, He disciplines us when we sin. He makes our lives miserable so that we'll come back to Him motivated by love and his wonderful forgiveness. Maybe you think you're too broken, too damaged, too unworthy, too filthy for God to love. There is no one who is too broken, too filthy, too damaged, too dirty, to be loved and forgiven by God. For God so loved the world Dave, I get it. God loves the evil world. But how do we measure God's love? How much does God love us? That brings us to the next point. So the author of love, the object of love, and third is the measure of love. What is the measure of God's love for us? The answer is sacrifice. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God the Father gave his only son for a very specific purpose. He gave us his only son for the specific purpose of sacrificing him on the cross in our place. This is the implication of the immediate context of John 3.16. Consider John 3.14-17. Verse 14 and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Verse 17. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. We see a similar connection between God sending his son and, uh, and love and the, the cross in 1 John. 1 John 4, 9 to 10, John writes, And this, the love of God, was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. 
in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. One scholar makes the point that nearly every time the New Testament speaks of the love of God the Father, it's almost always connected to a discussion of the cross. And that's because God demonstrates his love for us by sending his own son to be sacrificed on the cross. And we measure love through sacrifice, don't we? Someone may say they love you, but do they really love you? How do you know if they really love you? It's usually through their level of sacrifice. If a husband gives his wife some roses, it shows some level of sacrifice. He has to go to the store. He has to use his credit card. He has to grab the flowers and drive home. There's some sacrifice involved. If a husband volunteers to watch the kids all weekend, it, met, it, it, it demonstrates even more sacrifice. If a husband volunteers to take his wife to Hawaii for two weeks, that's even more sacrifice involved. If the same husband takes his wife to Hawaii for a few weeks, secures childcare for all the children, and while they're on the beach, he gets on one knee, and then he gives his wife some diamond earrings and a diamond necklace, and furthermore, in doing that, it means he can't buy the new pickup truck, the golf clubs, or the rifle. Now we know this guy has really sacrificed for his wife. He sacrificed time, he sacrificed money, he sacrificed that new truck, and all that demonstrates that this guy really loves his wife. We measure love often by the amount of sacrifice involved. The very essence of love is sacrifice. We know that God the Father loves us because he gave us his only son. And his only son came and suffered and died on the cross. That's how much God loves you. He sacrificed everything. His own son was murdered in your place. It almost seems as though on the cross, God loved us more than his own son because his son was murdered for guilty people like me and you. It's easy to doubt God's love when life is hard, when experiencing health problems, parenting woes, emotional problems, financial problems, work problems, marriage problems. When problems seem to overwhelm us, we often wonder, God, where are you? Do you really love me? How do I know that you love me? When we have those thoughts, when we're tempted to doubt God's love, we must remind ourselves that God the Father loved us so much that he sacrificed his own son to secure for us eternal happiness. Christians must possess an absolute rock-solid confidence that God loves them. And that love is measured in sacrifice. And God the Father sacrificed His own Son. 
When we doubt God's love, we must look to the cross again and again and again to remind ourselves of God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit's extravagant sacrifice for us. The cross is irrefutable proof that God loves us despite what you and I often feel. We often feel like God doesn't love us, but our feelings are often irrelevant because the objective truth is God sacrificed his own son for us to prove the measure of his love. The great Puritan Stephen Charnock wrote this, the wounds of an almighty God for us are a greater testimony of goodness than if we had all other riches of heaven and earth. Let me read that again. The wounds of an almighty God for us are a greater testimony of goodness than if we had all other riches of heaven and earth. Do you believe that this morning? Having the love of God the Father through God the Son is more valuable than the riches in all the earth. And if we really believe that, we can have everything ripped away from us and still experience some measure of joy and peace and a sense of the goodness and the love of God. Well, Dave, I know that God loves the world, but does God actually love me? I mean, if God knew all my sins and failures, my thoughts, words, and deeds, I doubt that he would love me. God knows all that, and he still loves you. But Dave, I got in on the group plan, for God so loves the world. Does he actually love me? When Jesus Christ died on the cross, he died for individual sinners. He had your names in mind, and Jesus suffered and died for your specific sins. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit have specific love for individuals. And if you're a Christian, he loves you with an extravagant love. Well, how does one respond to this loving sacrifice? And that brings us to the final point this morning, the most important point. So the author of love, the object of love, the measure of love, and fourth, the response of love. How should you and I respond to this incredible love? What's required of us? The answer is simply belief. Back to our text, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever works really, really hard will not perish and gain eternal life. Is that what the text says? No. That's the scandal of this text, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The last part of this verse is really shocking. God the Father gives the greatest gift conceivable to those who simply believe. There is nothing you and I can do to earn this extravagant love. We must simply believe to receive this gift. What does it mean to believe? And let's back up a little bit in the story. Go back to John 3.14 to get some context here. 
John writes, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. As I mentioned a few weeks ago, John 3.14 is a reference to this bizarre story in Numbers 21. Israel keeps complaining and complaining and complaining. They won't, they won't stop complaining. God's had enough after years and years and years of this rebellious complaining. And so God disciplines them by sending poisonous snakes in their midst. And people begin to die because of these poisonous snakes. But then God has mercy and He says, Moses, I want you to construct this bronze serpent. Put it on a pole. And all those who merely look at the serpent will be instantly healed. And this, of course, was an illustration of saving faith. We are infected with the disease of sin. And all those who merely look to Jesus as He hangs on the cross will be forgiven, adopted, cleansed, redeemed. We simply have to look to Jesus with the look of faith. On January 6th, 1850, a massive snowstorm almost crippled the city of Colchester, England, and a teenage boy was unable to make it to his normal church. So he made his way to a nearby primitive Methodist chapel where an ill-prepared layman was substituting for the absent preacher. And for months, this young man struggled with assurance of salvation. He wondered, am I really saved? What does it mean to believe on Jesus? Has God forgiven my sins? He wrestled with this whole assurance of salvation issue. And the young man described this church experience with these famous words. He says, at last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker or a tailor or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. When he'd managed to preach 10 minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether. Then he looked at me under the gallery, and I dare say with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. Just fixing his eyes on me as if he knew all my heart, he said, young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did. But I had not been accustomed to having remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance. However, it was a good blow struck right home. And then lifting up his hands and shouting, as only a primitive Methodist could do, he said, young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You've nothing to do but look and live. There and then, the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away. And that moment I saw the sun, and I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith which looks alone to him. This young man was none other than the famous Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, and he was converted by the words of a primitive Methodist lay preacher who exhorted him to look to Jesus Spurgeon looked to Jesus with the eyes of faith, and he was saved. All we must do is look to Jesus. And that look of faith is more than agreement to a set of doctrines. 
The look of faith is a look of humility. And it's always accompanied by an earnest desire to turn away from sins and to please the Savior. But that comes later. The look of faith is merely looking to Jesus and trusting Him and Him alone to forgive us, to reconcile us to God the Father. And that raises the question, how will you respond to God the Father's loving gift? There's only two possible responses according to our text, which means there are only two types of people in this world. Those who don't believe and perish, and those who believe and experience eternal life. Again, back to our text. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. One response leads to eternal perishing. That is, eternal separation from God's good, loving, benevolent presence in the outer darkness for all eternity. And that's really going to happen. There are real people who you know who will spend all eternity separated from God's good, benevolent presence. These words are true, but it doesn't have to be this way. All those who humble themselves and look to Jesus, put all their hope and confidence in Jesus, will experience, the text says, eternal life. Which raises the question, what is eternal life? Well, John 17, 3 describes it for us. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is a relationship with God. And that relationship is the source of all joy and peace in this life. The good news of the gospel is not merely having our sins forgiven. It's not merely being redeemed from sin, the flesh, and the devil. It's not merely being justified. Those things are wonderful, but those things are all removing obstacles for the best thing, which is relationship with God. Knowing the triune God, that is the good news of the gospel that's made possible through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Eternal life is knowing God, made possible through God the Father's extravagant love and God the Son's painful sacrifice. Because God loves you, yes, you, He wants relationship with you. He wants, you, he wants to adopt you into His family. And He's made this possible at a terrible cost. John 3.16 describes the author of love, the object of love, the measure of love, and the response to love. How will you respond to God's love this morning? Let me conclude with the words of this poem. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. Could we with ink the oceans fill and were the skies of parchment made, 
were every stock on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above, would drain the oceans dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your extravagant love demonstrated in the sending of your only Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we confess that we are often not that overwhelmed and amazed by your love. We often grow comfortable or familiar with your love. Father, we pray that as we think about the words of John 3.16, that you would once again remind us of your extravagant love for us. Lord, help us this week to think often of the great sacrifice you made on our behalf. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.